Hey there, you're listening to What the Frickative Podcast. If you're looking for an SLP podcast that is raw, unfiltered, and authentic, you've come to the right place. Join us as we chat about grad school survival, daily struggles, and successes of an SLP, and stories from all of you. You'll be sure to laugh, learn, and maybe even cry, but that's okay. We're here to support each other through it all. And now, here is your host, Sam, from Speaking of Semantics. Welcome to What the Frickin' a Podcast, where we discuss all things speech pathology. I'm your host, Sam, and thank you so much for tuning in to our podcast episode today. We'll be talking about personal experiences with aphasia, aphasia advocacy, volunteer opportunities, and resources with our special guest. Today on the show, we're very excited to have Sammy, a speech-language pathologist and aphasia advocate, currently completing her clinical fellowship in an adult-focused, post-acute setting. That is a mouthful. Hi, Sammy. Thank you so much for joining us today. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Of course. So I'm going to ask you this question. It may be a little scary to answer at first because I feel like speech pathologists love speech pathology. It becomes our personality. But can you tell us a little bit about yourself and who you are outside of the world of speech pathology? Yes. So outside of my clinical fellowship and all the work I bring home with me, I'm a dog mom of two. I have two giant puppies who just have endless energy. I got married right before the pandemic hit, like literally got married in January. Everything shut down in March. (laughs) We've been adjusting to married life and seeing each other 24-7, which has been fun. Um, I have a sister who's an author who lives in San Francisco. uh, And then my mom works for United. So lots of travel and reading and taking care of dogs. That is awesome. She's a good connect to have, but I'm sure it was probably <laughs> super scary during the pandemic for her. Well, all of us, but for her, especially. Yeah, Pretty. definitely. Well, that's awesome. I'm also a dog mom. We love dog moms out there, but yeah. So let's get a little bit into it. So at what point did you know you wanted to become an SLP? Was it something that you've always dreamed of, or was it kind of like an event that cause you to, you know, all of a sudden find this passion? Yeah, I went through a lot of different careers before settling on speech therapy. I uh, went to school for media and marketing communications um, in New York, and I had a lot of internships and public relations and marketing and every single one kind of solidified more and more that that was not the path I wanted to go down. (laughs) So I graduated with this degree in something that I realized I didn't want to do. So I tried teaching and there were aspects of that that I really enjoyed and aspects like classroom management that I really did not like at all. You know, shout out to all the teachers who have to do that every day. For real, especially during COVID. Yes, exactly. So then I worked in fashion for a little bit. I worked in finance for a little bit. Kind of all these little steps leading me towards speech language pathology. (laughs) I was going to say, you really dabbled with like all all types of careers. I know, I know. And I'm only 28. I feel like I've had five lifetimes of careers. That gives you good experience though. Like I would love to have backgrounds in like marketing, especially with like with our own businesses. That probably was so amazing for you. You know, it, it is and it isn't. I'm like, I have a degree in this, but... I'm so out of touch. You know, I graduated in 2014 and the world of marketing, I think, changes so much. And especially in recent years with social media and the pandemic and all of that. 
you know, I'm, I'm still a beginner in some ways. Oh yeah, definitely. Definitely. I feel like we all beginners. There's always something new to learn. Yes, exactly. But my dad actually had a stroke when I was 14 and he developed aphasia and had hemiparesis on the right side. So he was working with speech therapists, occupational therapists, physical therapists. And I was a freshman in high school at the time. So he was doing intensive rehab and I would go visit him at the hospitals. And then he came home and did some outpatient stuff. And I was kind of around speech language pathology at home. And when I would go visit him and never considered it as a career, it was just, you know, part of our family and something that we did. I um, ended up moving back from New York, back to the Bay Area where I'm from, around the same time that my dad actually ended up in the hospital. He was in a coma for about a month before passing away. And um, it was very sudden and scary. But I guess the silver lining of all of it was that I was at this career change point. And I had this epiphany of like, why don't I consider doing this thing that I would do every day at home as a career. And that's when I started looking into post-bac programs and started my speech journey. It's really different, I bet, when you're on the patient family side, because you often, you're just like, these are the motions that we're going through. You know, we just have to get these things done. You're learning all about speech pathology, but not like as a career, more just how to communicate with your dad or, you know, things to make his new different life a lot easier. Um, so that's really interesting that you were able to kind of say like, hey, this sounds pretty cool. Yeah, exactly. I feel like, you know, our life was kind of centered around the life participation approach to aphasia, but like never knew that name for it until I got into school for speech language pathology. It was just what we did. Yeah. So you applied to grad school. Um, did you get right in? How did you get into like the school that you wanted to go to? Or was it just kind of like you, you were down to go anywhere? Yeah, so I did a post-bac program in Oregon, and I was doing that part-time, working full-time, um, and then I was volunteering with this group called Aphasia Recovery Connection for about three years, I guess, from the time I started applying for the post-bac up until I finished it, and I think a lot of that volunteer experience and my personal experience with aphasia helped me get into the program that I wanted to during my first round of applications. I also, my mom uh, got sick with sepsis when I was in college and I wrote about her in my personal statement. And a lot of that personal experience comes out, especially when you're learning to become a speech pathologist because she had a trach um, and, you know, seeing her speech pathologist at that point, I knew I I already wanted to become a speech pathologist, but that got, that kind of like solidified the fact that, wow, like I can help someone's recovery so much by simple things like giving the patient five more minutes of my day and actually, you know, doing something that they need versus just the hustle and bustle of the hospital world. And just, this is another patient on my list. Yes, exactly. How's your mom doing now? She's amazing. I mean, she's back at work. She's breathing on her own. She's that, that lady is a rock star. Nothing can knock her down, but she's, she's good now. She is awesome. Thanks for asking. Of course. So do you feel like having that experience with your dad on the patient side and knowing that you kind of had this new fuel passion for aphasia, do you feel like that impacted your graduate school career in like any negative or positive ways or just in general? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think sometimes people go into grad school knowing exactly what they want to do. And other times they're like, I have no idea. I'm hoping I figure out. 
I think from the get go, you know, even during my post back experience, I knew I wanted to work with people with aphasia, which I think was great, but also sort of doing my clinical fellowship and all of my clinical experiences, like it seems very broad, but it's also very narrow. I think it's really hard to find something where you're like, I'm only working with people with aphasia. Um, So right now I'm at a skilled nursing facility and I do have patients with aphasia, but I also have a lot of patients who I'm seeing for dysphagia or cognitive communication stuff. And I think, you know, knowing what I know now, being in my clinical fellowship, I trying to think about how to say this. I wish that I had a better understanding of how I guess all of our other like areas of practice would play into working with patients with aphasia. Yeah. I I feel like oftentimes people who go into graduate school, they're either tunnel vision, know what they want to do, or it's the opposite. And it's like, I have no idea what I want to do as soon as graduation comes. And both Mm -hmm. perspectives have their pros and cons. Right. Yeah. With people who have that like kind of like tunnel vision, they're they're ready to get to the finish line already before they even start. It's difficult because you have to get through so many steps before mm-hmm. you get to that final, that final finish line. So for you, you know, a job with many patients with aphasia versus like where you are now, where there's like here and there, you know, will come in the future. But you had to get through graduate school. You had to get through probably different rotations with kids and all these other things that you may not necessarily like, but you know, you still had to go through the motions. And then the other side of it, it's just like people have a hard time kind of narrowing down what they want to do. Yeah, I think like I liked my pediatric placements because they were so challenging, you know, like I don't feel like I'm good with kids. So I think it really helped me with those skills. And I do, I feel like this phrase is said all the time, but I do really think that it's important to remember that our degree is such a generalist degree. And it's really important to have those skills to be able to work across the lifespan because the opportunity that I wanted to have right away or that someone else might want to have right away, like might not be there the moment you graduate. And it's important to be flexible. Yeah. I say that often. I'm like, your clinical fellowship does not have to be uh, like a permanent job. It could just be a job that gets you through, gets you your license because there's a lot more out there once you're applying as a licensed speech pathologist, a lot more out there. So, you know, you have this experience with your dad, with your family, you know, you really learned how to help a person with aphasia without having the background of speech pathology. And then, you know, kind of whole spitting that around and going to graduate school for speech pathology. You know, you have so many different perspectives that I think that's really going to make you such a great clinician. So with your patients now, does the family part of it seem so much more important because you know what it's like? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think Yes. And also it's been so hard with the pandemic, right? Because sometimes visitors aren't allowed. You can only have a certain number of visitors a day. Sometimes family can't visit because of health reasons. And so I think it always just boils down to talking with the patient about what's important to them. You know, that life participation approach is like, is family something that's important to you? Do you want to be able to communicate with them? Like if they're if the patients are staying in the skilled nursing facility, it's about interacting with the staff and the other therapists and the rehab aides and all of that more. Um, 
But yeah, I always try to incorporate family, especially because what we found is that a lot of the times we would know exactly what my dad was trying to say quicker than the speech therapist, because the mannerisms are still the same. Um, You know, you have an idea of what the person's trying to get out just because you know them well. And I think being on the clinician side of that, it can be so helpful to incorporate family to figure out the best way to help the patient communicate. Yeah, because all patients with aphasia are not the same. Some like when you finish the sentence, some really want to get that last word out, whether or not it takes five minutes or 30 minutes, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. it's very interesting. So how, I'm just curious to know, like how your dad, how was his like attitude with speech therapy? Was it a lot of like family involvement? How did that all play out? Yeah, so he had the best attitude ever. I mean, even before his stroke, he was, very outgoing, very positive and social, um, like just had this charisma that everyone who met him loved him. And none of that went away after his stroke. So he had a really good sense of humor and was able to laugh at himself, which I think really helped, right? Because it can be so frustrating when you know what you want to say, and you can't say it. Um, And I think that really helped him kind of get around those frustrating moments. He also did a lot of these ICAPs, um, intensive comprehensive aphasia programs. So he would go to different facilities across the country. He went to one in Nova Scotia, Canada, and he would be there for four weeks, six weeks, eight weeks, just doing intensive speech therapy, like 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. And it was really cool because I was still in high school. I got to you know, go for a long weekend or miss a week of school, bring my homework with me and actually sit in on those sessions, doing the individual and group sessions. And I got to meet a lot of other people with aphasia and their families. And I think there was so much great involvement in those. And it also really helped our family kind of process the new normal that we were living in. Yeah. I was going to say, it's like a whole different world, you know, And his life was probably turned upside down or around so sudden, you know, your family. I mean, people who aren't in the world of speech pathology, aphasia isn't like a a household thing that people throw around. You know, a lot of people hear stroke, you know, Mm -hmm. aneurysm, heart attack, all of those. But not many people say, you know, or or know of aphasia. So at at any point, because I was on my first episode of the podcast, I have a an actual graduate student who has aphasia and she's because she's, she'll be an SLP because uh, she's graduating in August. And she brought up a good point, which I'm curious to see if it happened. Same with your family. But she said that no one ever verbally told her you have aphasia. So mm-hmm. after she had her stroke, she knew that something was going wrong, but no one actually took the time to like tell her what aphasia is and like how and what, what it was. Yeah. You know, I honestly don't remember if the doctors told my dad, I think, unfortunately, there was a lot of talking to my sister and I and my mom when my dad would be in the room and not really directing that information to him because of that language barrier. Um, But my mom did so much research that I imagine she was the one who talked to my dad about it and talked to my sister and I about it. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, you become like a researcher after a diagnosis like that. I mean, my mom got sick back in 2015. She's okay now, but uh, she had ARDS, acute respiratory distress syndrome. And I'm like, okay, the doctor just told our family that my mom has this. So my first natural response is to Google it. 
And for anyone out there, that was the worst decision that I could have ever made because it was like, everyone's going to die. This is horrible. Like, (laughs) but you know, this just really kind of proves, you know, oftentimes the speech pathologists were on the healthcare side. We tell patients they have aphasia. We tell moms that their child has an articulation disorder. We're, We're on the kind of like healthcare side, but it's very important to have that sort of patient compassion and, you know, use layman terms, explain to the patient what's going on. And it just, adds, when you're in that position of the family side or the patient side, you realize how important that is. Because like for your family, aphasia was probably a new word. And your mom was like Googling her fingers are probably all over the keyboard Googling, you know, so it just goes to show more on the speech pathology side, how important our explanation or how important that family or patient time is outside of therapy, you know? this is what we're doing. Uh, this is why we're doing it. Here's how you can facilitate generalization at home. Yeah, I totally agree. I think it's also so important to bring in resources and have things available to leave with families because we're throwing so much information yeah. at them and we're not the only ones. And I think we have to strike this fine balance between like overloading them with papers that are just going to get lost in the shuffle and being really mindful about things that they can use and resources to kind of keep. Exactly. And going off of that, as someone who like as a patient, as a patient's family member, do you have any advice for like SLPs out there who want to work with this type of population? Yeah, I think the biggest thing, um, I'm sure a lot of people are aware of this already, but aphasia can be so isolating because it really limits our socialization and our connections. You know, like you said earlier, a lot of people don't know what aphasia is until it happens to them or someone that they know. And I think a lot of people don't know how to communicate with people with aphasia because of that. And so that group that I volunteered with, Aphasia Recovery Connection, has this massive online presence. There's a big Facebook group. Um, They do a lot of Zoom calls that just really help increase socialization, help people with aphasia meet and talk with other people with aphasia. Um, And I think there's some really great opportunities to volunteer with them and get involved with them. But just giving families and patients that resource alone is super helpful. You know, a lot of our patients come in now with a smartphone or a tablet or something and just getting them on Facebook and on that group site can be so helpful. Yeah. And you know, the internet is a black hole. You can get lost in the internet and I'm sure your mom was probably super overwhelmed with all the information that was coming up on the internet. So as speech pathologists, I think it's important to be able to provide your patients with resources that you know are helpful or that you know are good Um, because it's easy to get lost in information that may or may not be right or, you know, may or may not be good for that patient's family. You know, oftentimes it's like you Google something and I click on the first thing and, you know, that's it. I just go with that, whatever the first thing is. So yeah, so being a speech pathologist and just kind of having those pocket full of resources to be able to provide to patients after you give a diagnosis or after you start a new treatment there, treatment plan. Yeah, exactly. I think it's really important to take that extra time to make sure that the resources that you're handing out, like you said, you vetted and you know that they're actually going to be resourceful and helpful. And 
even knowing like physical um, support groups or resources in the area, I think it's really helpful to take the time to research that. Yeah. And, you know, as we add years onto our SLP career, it often becomes just not just a job. I don't, I don't want to say just a job, but it becomes a routine for us. So mm-hmm. aphasia is something we hear all the time. All of these treatments is something that we do all the time. And I think it's easy to forget that when you're talking to a patient or when you're talking to a patient's family member, that this is all new. So it's, it's important to keep that in mind always, you know, always have the idea of, you know, giving the patient some extra time to process things, giving them, you know, enough information, but like you said, not too much, too much information because then it's overwhelming and kind of always being open to being a resource for that. You know, you can also give them resources, but you yourself are a resource that they should be able to kind of reach out to. Yeah, I totally agree. So I I know you're touched a little bit upon the volunteer opportunities, but do you have any other opportunities um, or resources that you kind of tell patients with aphasia or as uh, SLP students? Yeah, I think um, ARC is the biggest one. They have a lot of offshoots. I was able to go on a aphasia recovery connection cruise and volunteer. It's just people with aphasia cruising together. And wow, they can that take is amazing. Part. It's so cool. They're just like, you know, being normal people. And then there's speech sessions if you want, or you can just go and do your own thing. Um, there's lots of different opportunities with them. You can also do the like daily zoom calls. Now, um, I led a lot about mindfulness and mindfulness connected to aphasia. And there's a lot of really good books to read. Healing the broken brain is a really good one. Um, let me look at the name of this other one I just read. That is amazing. I feel like I want to do that cruise. (laughs) Yeah. I think they're doing one or two this year. Um, It was so much fun. I brought my friend along, a childhood friend who knew my dad before and after his stroke, um, but hadn't really seen anyone else with aphasia. And she just said it was so insightful and like educational and rewarding. And also we had a blast swimming with dolphins. Yeah. Well, also (laughs) too, like you, you know, you mentioned how isolating aphasia can be and, you know, to be on a huge cruise with everyone who can relate to you, I'm sure is such an amazing feeling for them. Yeah, exactly. And kind of get that sense of normalcy, you know, like a lot of times with aphasia, you get the physical deficits as well. And I think that that can be really limiting, but something like a cruise is like a great option um, for people to kind of get on the boat and then be mobile on the ship. Right. Be able, if they're a wheelchair bound, be able to just roll around anywhere without having to exactly. be, you know, helped and stuff. And, it, you know, since it's just for aphasia, I can only imagine that the staff on there is fully versed in communicating with people with aphasia. Well, so that's what was so cool about it was we were like a group of, you know, people with aphasia, speech therapists, their care partners. And then there were a bunch of other people on the cruise who were just cruising and doing their own thing. So it was also a great opportunity to spread awareness of what aphasia is. Because there was one day where we all had our shirts on. Uh, I have one that says, ask me about aphasia. And I had a couple people come up to me and ask me what it was. What is it? (laughs) (laughs) That is so funny. Did you um, find the, the, the name of the other book? Yeah, it's called Identity Fest. It's a really good book. It's about a Stanford professor who had a stroke and now has aphasia. 
And um, they're doing some really cool things too. I think they're going to do a bike trip across the country this summer. um, And they're going to stop in a lot of different places. So I think going to some of their events would be a really good volunteer opportunity as well. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, this experience is good on your resume, but it's also just good experience to have. I mean, it probably changes the way you think, changes the way you know, you, you interact with people in general, it doesn't have to be even people with aphasia in the world that we are in now, especially me being from New York. And I mean, you have the experience from New York too, but everything is always fast paced. Mm-hmm. Everyone talks fast. Everyone moves fast. You know, sometimes you have to take a second and realize not everyone can be up to that standard. Even if that's the culture you come from, like I'm from New York and I'm always in a rush, but you know, sometimes with patients or clients or students, I have to realize, you know, take a second, give yeah. them a second, you know, aphasia is oftentimes like a connectivity issue. They know what they want to say, but they just need time to say it. Exactly. Yeah. That. Do you think that, um, well, I think we all know that COVID has had a bit, a big impact on aphasia, but from what you've seen, from what you've read and all these opportunities, what kind of difficulties have been kind of really big with COVID and aphasia? Yeah, I've had the opportunity to talk with several people who actually had their stroke and started their recovery process while COVID was going on. And I think there were a lot of really unique challenges, like family members not being able to go to the hospital when their loved one is recovering and kind of going through that process of not being able to say what you want to say right away and have people understand right away and being on your own in the hospital. I think that's been a really unique challenge um, that the pandemic has kind of brought about. I think also it's even more isolating um, kind of what we talked about before with friends and family, not knowing how to interact. There's now these added barriers because face-to-face communication tends to be the best to help people understand, right? Because you can use emotions, facial expressions, gestures. And when you take some of those away and you're just talking on the phone, it can be a lot more difficult. You can have a lot more communication breakdowns and frustration. And it's, I think it's just been so exponentially more isolating. Yeah. And that probably happens a lot too with masks now. Mm, Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It limits a lot of facial expressions. It, you know, mutes the sound a little. can only imagine how hard it is. I know. So when your dad was in the hospital and you had to deal with doctors or, you know, when you were around family members, you weren't around so often, how are some ways that you like advocated for him or he advocated for himself so that he can be communicated with and have the best kind of communication experience? Yeah. So we were really fortunate because he did a really good job overall advocating for himself and, you know, trying and trying and trying again, he would do this great thing where he would check for understanding. I think a lot of times, you know, people get uncomfortable when they have to ask someone to repeat themselves after a certain number of times or keep saying, you know, I don't understand what you're saying. So he would sometimes get like a, mm-hmm, oh, yeah. And then he would say um, in his version, like, what did I say? Tell me what I right. said. <laughs> <laughs> and it was great because it really held people accountable to take the time to understand him and listen to him. Um, And at the beginning, after his stroke, he would kind of rely on my mom, my sister and myself to interpret what he was saying for other people. 
And I think it was hard for us and hard for him because we would see him struggling and we'd want to jump in and help. But, you know, in order to help him be more independent, we had to take a step back and say like, no, you got this. I can't do this for you. Um, And kind of let him struggle for a little bit to get it out. Yeah. I think the hard part about dealing with someone uh, that has like that kind of communication difficulty is the silent pauses or, mm-hmm. you know, oftentimes silence is, silence is seen as like not okay, but most of the time dealing with patients with aphasia, silence is what they need. They need time to process. They need time to think, um, you know, they need time because the more interruptions, the harder it is for them to keep their thought process going. Yes, totally. And I think that's another thing that's so important to like educate families on and also make sure that you're doing when you're doing therapy with people with aphasia to make sure you reduce as much background noise and distractions as possible. So I think we're so used to tuning stuff out every day, but closing the door, um, like shutting the blinds, if there's bright light coming in, muting the TV, turning it off, all of those things, like you said, make such a big difference. Yeah. Did, did your dad ever go through like a, a point where he was frustrated? Yes, totally. So for about the first year after his stroke, he actually didn't fully realize that he had aphasia. Um, He kind of had some lack of insight with that. And I think there was a lot of frustration because it's like, I'm saying what I want to say. Why why don't you understand me? And then there were also points where we would realize, you know, after a certain time and in the evening, We just couldn't push him to do the speech therapy part of it because it was so exhausting. You know, his brain's working so hard all day and we learned to kind of back off because he would get really frustrated. And it's, I think it's a hard balance because it's like, I I know what I want to say. I know you're trying to help me, but sometimes like, I just want to have a conversation without the speech therapy aspect to it. Yeah, I could, I could definitely see how that's hard. I never even thought about that. Oftentimes like with speech therapy, it's like, here are some tips for communication effectiveness. And we don't realize how taxing those tips are for the patient. Um, you know, the circumlocution, all of that stuff is, you know, takes a lot of energy. And like you said, by the end of the day, he was probably like, don't talk to me, just get me to bed. <laughs> exactly. That is so interesting. So now as a, as a speech pathologist, are there any things that you do, like kind of like inspired by your story with your dad? Um, or just by kind of learning in school that you that you do to advocate for your patients who have like communication difficulties, especially the ones living in like the nursing home, because they oftentimes see a thousand people a day. And I can only imagine that all those people don't take uh, those tips of communication effectiveness to heart. <laughs> yeah, that's a great question. I think there's always more that I can do. And I can always do a better job that I'm doing now with advocacy. But I think it's just about taking it a step further than hanging the signs on the wall and like giving handouts. It's, it's about that face-to-face interaction with the CNAs and the nurses and the staff, like really telling them and explaining what aphasia is and what's going to work best. You know, I think there've definitely been times where I've been doing my clinical fellowship where a nurse comes in, asks the patient something, the patient doesn't even have time to answer or doesn't have a reliable yes, no. And I can tell that they've said yes when they mean no, because I've been working with them. And the nurse is like, okay, great. And walks out. 
And I think that's such a good opportunity as a speech therapist to jump in and help clarify that answer and also how other staff can do that moving forward to have more effective and efficient communication with the patient. Yeah, I think especially in settings like that, it's hard to not feel like you're stepping on someone else's toes, you know, always trying to correct someone, whether it's a CNA or the nurse or anyone else who walks in the room. But in reality, we just kind of meet it in the most sincerest way for the for the patient. But that's that nurse's job, right? She's probably she may or may not have had a bad day or all of that. But I also agree with you that the signs are good in theory, but they never really work. And my grandfather, he was just in the hospital a week ago. He's okay, but he's uh, legally blind. And because of COVID, we can only be there so long through visiting hours. So eventually we had to leave. And he's newly blind later in his life. So, you know, he's had vision his entire life. He's not very good at advocating for himself. He often kind of takes a backseat. Like, I'll just let people do whatever. And once they need me, I'll figure it out. And then I found myself asking him like, oh, what'd you have for dinner? He's like, I don't really know. I'm like, well, didn't you eat it? He's like, well, yeah, it was meat. I just couldn't see it. And it's hospital food. So I have no idea what I was eating. Things like that. Like there was a, a sign there that says he's visually impaired. And, you know, someone just came along, plopped his tray down and walked away. Didn't say like, mm-hmm. here's where, like I, when I'm with him, I'm like, here's your corn, here's your potato, like guiding him. But it's hard when you rely on someone else to take care of your family member. It's hard then. So, you know, having someone like you to advocate for them, I'm sure is amazing. But like you said, it's all about kind of going that extra step. Yeah. And I think what you were saying earlier is, you know, it is hard to feel like we're not stepping on toes or having this weird, like, I'm going to tell you how to do your job better sort of feeling. I think it's about understanding, you know, what their job is. They're seeing this many patients. They only have this amount of time and approaching it like, look, this is going to make your job easier. Like it's going to have a learning curve at first, but it's actually going to help you be more efficient and kind of presenting it that way, I think will hopefully help to have more successful interactions. Yeah. And I always think that like making relationships with the people you work with, especially in a setting like you are, is so important because without that kind of relationship, and it, could, it doesn't have to be best friends. It could just be like simply, hey, good morning. How are you? You know, because that makes it even less of a stepping on someone's toes, you know, like you really sincerely care about the patient. You care about them, you care about, you know, getting the patient out in the best sort of way. So for anyone, for grad students who are listening out there or anyone who hasn't like kind of reached that point where they're working, you know, having those relationships with everyone, not just the nurses, not just the doctors, you know, CNAs, people don't realize how much CNAs do, especially, and for those who don't know, certified nursing assistant. So the people who clean up the patient, the people who, you know, I, I don't mean this in a mean way, but kind of do all the dirty work. And they spend so much time with the patients and they're often kind of just look past, you know, so have the relationships with those people and they're most likely the ones feeding the patients in a, in a case of dysphagia. So you want them to know, you want them to want to take advice from you or want to take some tips from you. Yeah. And I think it actually goes back to the first question that you asked me, like, who are you outside of a speech language pathologist? I think building those relationships as like coworkers and not just I'm the speech language pathologist, you're the CNA is really helpful too. Yeah, exactly. I, I, I always go by, you know, give everyone the same respect, no matter if they're the janitor, mm-hmm. CNA, CEO, everyone gets the same respect. Everyone is working hard. And especially during these COVID times, no one is having a good time. 
Yeah, I've been trying to live by the mantra of assume good intentions, exactly. which I think is very important and necessary with the pandemic and everyone being so burnt out and overwhelmed yeah. all the time. Yes, yes. Well, thank you for shedding so much light on aphasia. I do want to take some time for you to brag about your business. <laughs> Well, thanks. You know, I think like many speech language pathologists who have kind of started their own thing, it started during the pandemic as just something to do. I was still in grad school when the pandemic hit and I needed some sort of creative outlet. So I started drawing and making these kind of nice, aesthetically pleasing study aids to hang on my wall and posted a couple on Instagram and my classmates were like, this is really cool. (laughs) Can I, can I have a copy? And it just kind of grew from there. And you've actually been a huge inspiration. I have to say what, what you've done with your business is fantastic. And it was so inspiring to me. I think I actually messaged you, I don't know, probably a year and a half to two years ago. And I was like, how are you doing it? And you were so kind. It gave me so much good advice. So thank you. So sweet. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, honestly, same like you, I kind of just started during the pandemic. I had no idea what I was doing. And I'm sure like you, you can probably relate to this when people were asking you for it. You're probably just like, well, heck yeah. Like you can have it. And then you're like, well, maybe I can make money from this. (laughs) And then it's like, well, how much can I make? Like I, when I first started doodling, I was like, oh, this is cool. And I was like, oh, maybe I'll buy a cricket. And then I was like, oh, I guess I'll sell them. But for how much? And what do I tell people? And who's going to want, like, it's just so many questions in your head. Yeah. Well, you've done a fantastic job on making things that, you know, are so helpful and beautiful and fun. I love the um, cookie theft. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. That is like one of my favorites. Um, I appreciate what you're saying. I really do. It's a funny story about the cookie theft picture. So it's like a well-known picture for all speech pathologists. And first of all, side story, my mom came to ASHA with me because I had a booth at ASHA and a lot of people came to the booth asking for that. And she's like, what's this cookie thing? I don't see any stickers with a cookie on it. <laughs> so explaining that to her was pretty funny. But then another story with, uh, about um, Asha and that sticker is that I had an older woman come up to me and, you know, she was like, you know, I see your cookie theft picture. And it's funny because I have this sticker. She's like, but I had no idea like who you were, what your shop is. Like I just happened to buy it on Etsy. And then I was like, oh, that's super interesting. Well, thank you so much for your support, all that. And she's like, it's funny because after buying one, I loved it so much. I went back and I bought all like a whole bunch for everyone who she had worked with in a hospital like 30 years ago. And she said it like sparked conversations, funny stories. And I was just like, I like you don't realize how much of an impact you're making on people until you hear stories like that. So I'm sure that like your I mean, your pictures are beautiful. And I wish that I had them in grad school because I was looking at some black and white textbook stuff (laughs) (laughs) or trying to draw my own and that didn't go well. Um, But I'm sure like you don't realize how many grad students out there use those and really it it helps them understand the information because in grad school, you and I both know way too much information at once. (laughs) Oh my gosh. It's so overwhelming. You have to tape everything to your wall to remember it. Exactly. And like, not even like, I'm sure now you're like, what did I learn in grad school? Oh, yeah. No, it's great when I make new designs. I'm like, this is a nice refresher for me. too. Exactly. Yeah. 
yeah, I'm doing the praxis prep course now for like grad students. And I'm just like, uh, what is the answer to this? Like sometimes I go, I'm like, would I even pass a praxis if I took it now? Questions we don't want to know the answers to. Literally not at all. Well, thank you so much for coming on. I want to give you a second to shout out your page and your website so that everyone knows where to find you. Yes. So uh, you can find me at Sammy Wong underscore on Instagram. And then I have some great free aphasia resources on my website, speechpluslanguage.com. And there's links to everything on that website too. You can find my Etsy shop, Speech Plus Language on there. I think that's it. Yeah. And I just, it's going to be in the show notes, but it's speech P-L-U-S, like the actual word plus. Yes. Thank no, you. <laughs> I don't want anyone to mistake it just in case there's some fraudulent people out there. I'm just kidding. Um, well, thank you so much. Thank you for sharing your story. Thank you for sharing your dad's story. You know, his memory is inspiring everyone. And he, because of him, he, you will be an amazing speech pathologist with such a compassionate heart. And it, you know, you're so important to the speech pathology world, the speech pathologist that you are and families, I'm, sh- pro- I'm sure are so appreciative of you. Um, But thank you so much for coming and sharing your story. And it's going to inspire everyone. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of What the Frickative Podcast. If you're enjoying the show, please feel free to rate, subscribe, and leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. We appreciate that effort as it helps others find the show. Thanks again for tuning in. And we'll catch you in the next episode.